you to open up your Bibles this morning and let's turn to the book of Daniel and chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. Lord willing, this will be our final message on Daniel 3. We are looking forward to Pastor Hendricks speaking to us next Sunday for our anniversary service. And then uh, two weeks from now, we will move into Daniel chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, please feel free to grab one of the Bibles in the seats in front of you. Uh, You'll find our passage this morning on page 739 in those Bibles. Page 739. Uh, Today is October 30th, which means tomorrow is Reformation Day. Uh, Tomorrow is the 499th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing those 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, Next year, uh, there will be huge celebrations among Protestant Christians all over the world as they celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And the benefits of the Reformation are incredible. Think about how different things would be for us in this room this morning had the Reformation not taken place. You would be looking at Latin Bibles rather than English Bibles. I would be conducting this service this morning in Latin using words that most of us wouldn't even understand. Uh, The service would be very much about ritual and and ceremony. There would be very little preaching at all, certainly not an emphasis on on the gospel. Uh, Had the Reformation never taken place, we would be going to a priest to confess our sins. Rather than looking to Jesus alone, we would be counting on that priest to intervene for us and to intercede for us before God. Without the Reformation, we'd have no real assurance of salvation. Uh, We'd have to keep working, keep attending Mass, keep doing the sacraments and performing penance, all in hope of obtaining enough merit to get to heaven. If it wasn't for the Reformation, I as a minister could not have a wife and would not have children and would never have known the joys of family life. On and on we could go. We could talk about the Protestant work ethic. We could talk about how the Reformation changed the character of Western societies and Western governments. There would be no Declaration of Independence. There would be no Bill of Rights. There would be no United States of America as we know it today. Apart from Reformation principles. But all of those benefits of the Reformation do not compare with this one. The Reformation was the recovery of the good news of Jesus Christ. The Reformation was the recovery of the wonderful message of salvation for sinners like us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, on the basis of the Scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. Dear friends, in all likelihood, we would not be a saved people here this morning. 
we would not be a heaven-bound people were it not for what God did in the days of the Reformation. You and I would not know Jesus Christ personally. And there is nothing better in the world than that. So I am incredibly grateful for the Reformation, and I hope as you celebrate tomorrow, I hope that you are grateful as well. It came at a great cost, didn't it? Uh, The Reformation spread throughout Europe in an age where there were no blogs, there were no cell phones, there was not 24-hour television news. The Reformation spread through real men and women giving their lives, many illegally translating the Bible into languages people could understand, people illegally printing those Bibles, people illegally smuggling those Bibles across borders. The Reformation spread through pamphlets and tracts that were outlawed by governments that were banned by the Pope. Reformation spread through courageous preachers who stood in pulpits and preached the word of God even when they knew it might mean their death sentence. The Reformation spread through secret Bible studies, hidden prayer meetings, and also discussions in coffee shops and taverns. But above all, the Reformation spread through blood. It spread through men, women, and even some children who became martyrs because they believed so strongly in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that they would not deny it even to save their lives. Just like in the early church before, it was these brave souls dying for their faith that brought many to consider the gospel who otherwise would have stayed far away from it. This morning as we come to the book of Daniel, we're going back two millennia before the Reformation. For you see, those Reformation martyrs were not the first of God's people to give their lives in obedience to Him. There were thousands who had done similar things before them. And here in our study of Daniel 3, we've already seen these godly men take their stand before King Nebuchadnezzar. These three men were willing to die before they would bow down to the pagan image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are high officials in the king's government. They are men of authority serving at the pleasure of King Nebuchadnezzar. They never intended to dishonor the king, but they've been put in this situation. And they must obey God rather than men. Having taken their stand, knowing that it was their death sentence, we read what happens next. So we're picking up this morning in verse 19. So look with me there. Daniel 3 verse 19. This is the word of God. The Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. 
Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent, and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Stop there. So, as a kid, I always imagined the fiery furnace as being a hole in the ground. I don't know why that was the picture I had, but I pictured them being thrown into some kind of a, a pit. Uh, but the ancient furnaces that we found in the Middle East aren't like that at all. Uh, instead, imagine a large furnace shaped like one of those old-timey milk bottles. So, um, there's a large mouth at the top. And then the neck narrows in, and then it widens back out at the bottom. Uh, this is kind of what the furnaces probably looked like. The furnace sits above ground, and they were often built into the side of a hill or had steps that were built into the side of the furnace. And that way the furnace was accessible both from the top as well as from the bottom. It was from the top that you could throw materials into the furnace. It was from the top that smoke escaped. And it was from the bottom that you could strengthen the fire with bellows or uh, use pipes to extract materials out of the furnace. Also, uh, like a smeltering furnace you might have seen if you've been to Colonial Williamsburg or somewhere like that, uh, it's likely that there was a significantly large opening at the bottom of the furnace which is why later we will see that the king and others could see into the furnace even from a little distance away. Nebuchadnezzar in this passage is now piping hot angry. And he seems to be particularly angry because these aren't just any men who are defying him. These are officials in his government. These are men whom he appointed to their place and they are blatantly disobeying him. So he sees this as an act of direct rebellion, as an act of treason. And the king is going to send a message to the rest of his officials in the way he punishes these three men. It appears that these men were made to wear their court clothes. Did you notice how our passage walked through the different clothes that they were going to put on before they were thrown into the furnace? These were their, their official apparel. The fact that these were government leaders made their crime all the more heinous in the eyes of the king, and so they would die in their court clothes. The three men are bound, and they are thrown into the furnace from the top. But the fire inside the furnace was made so hot and had been so built up that the flames themselves, not just smoke, but flames themselves are coming out the top of the furnace. This was unusual. This wasn't supposed to happen. And that explains why those who were so quickly obeying this angry king weren't prepared. And when they threw in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they too were caught in the flames and were burnt. Well, certainly Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not expected to last more than a few seconds. Uh, this would be a horrendously painful death, but it would also be a quick death. Uh, they were expected to be burnt to a crisp. As these three are thrown into the furnace, the king is watching at the bottom level, 
And suddenly we can imagine his jaw dropping in disbelief at what he sees. So look at verse 24. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now you can imagine how incredible this is. The the fire is absolutely raging. But here are these men, now unbound, walking around in the fire, unhurt. The fire has somehow managed to, to burn up their binds, but it hasn't harmed a hair on their head. And then there's this fourth man. He's described by Nebuchadnezzar as one like a son of the gods. What made the king say that? Was this fourth man glowing in some way in the midst of the fire? Was there a a glory around this fourth man that, that, that showed him to be something different? Was he larger, perhaps, taller than the other men? We're not told what led Nebuchadnezzar to say this. All we're told is that it was clearly evident that this fourth person was different. This fourth person in the furnace looked divine. He appeared to be something like an angel. So who was this fourth person that suddenly appears in the furnace? Well, in verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar will call him an angel. And when put against the context of the rest of the Old Testament, I think we're safe in saying that this is yet another appearance of that person who shows up again and again in important moments of the Old Testament. That person who is called the angel of the Lord. Remember when Hagar was in her distress in Genesis 16. The angel of the Lord came to her and spoke comforting promises to her. In Genesis 22, the angel of the Lord halts Abraham at the last second. Abraham has the dagger raised above his son Isaac's body. He's about to kill his son, to sacrifice his son in obedience to God. And the angel of the Lord appears and says, stop. It was this angel who spoke to Moses from the midst of the burning bush. In the time of the judges, when there was no king in Israel, When everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, the angel of the Lord appears again and again, speaking to people, raising up saviors to to deliver and defend God's people. Uh, Before that, it was this angel who stood in the road before Balaam and his donkey with his sword drawn. The donkey saw him, though at first Balaam did not. It was the angel of the Lord who brought death to God's people because of a wicked sin of David, halting at Mount Zion and revealing to David where the temple of God was to be built. And when the prophet Elijah was fleeing from wicked Queen Jezebel, and Elijah was so weary and so depressed that he was ready to die, it was the angel of the Lord who appeared to him and who cared for him. 
When Jerusalem was about to be destroyed by the Assyrians, it was the angel of the Lord who struck down the entire army in one night. The angel of the Lord killed 185,000 people of the Assyrians in one night. Psalm 34 verse 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Yet the strange thing about this angel of the Lord is that he is often spoken of not just as an angel, a messenger from God. He is often spoken of as God himself. And so you may remember when we were in Exodus 3, we were told that it was the angel of the Lord in the midst of the fire of the bush. And yet the angel of the Lord is called Yahweh, right? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, Yahweh. Uh, The word God is also used there of the angel of the Lord. In Judges 6, the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon and speaks to Gideon. And several times we are told that the person who appeared to Gideon and spoke to him was the angel of the Lord. And yet he is also called the angel of God. And then twice he is referred to as Yahweh. For example, verse 14 And the Lord turned to him and said. So so both in Exodus 3 and in Judges 6, as well as other passages, we have this idea that the angel of the Lord is somehow distinct from Yahweh because he's the messenger of Yahweh. That's what angel means. So he's he's distinct from Yahweh, and yet he also is Yahweh. So he, he is God, but he's distinct from God. It's a little confusing, right? Friends, the doctrine of the Trinity didn't come from nowhere, right? There's a reason that these doctrines came about. Uh, We have an answer for how the angel of the Lord can be both God and distinct from God, namely that the angel of the Lord is in fact one of the three persons of the Godhead. And since angel means messenger, he's likely not the Father, but either the Son or the Spirit, And most think that the angel of the Lord is actually a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we think that? Well, first, because the angel of the Lord is himself worshipped at times. For example, in Judges 6, when the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, Gideon builds an altar to the angel of the Lord and worships him. If this angel had been a created angel any other angel, this would have been a terrible thing for Gideon to do. Mount Hermon, we don't worship angels, do we? They are creatures like us. We worship God alone. We remember how John in the book of Revelation started to worship an angel, and the angel said to John, stop, you must not do that. Worship God alone. The angel of the Lord is the only angel we find in the whole Bible that it seems appropriate to worship. Because he's not just an angel. He himself is God. And here's the difference between the Son and the Spirit. While it's certainly appropriate to worship the Holy Spirit and to honor him, throughout the pages of the Bible, we typically see the Spirit putting the spotlight on Christ. It is typically Christ that we see worship being offered to in the pages of Scripture. And then there's Exodus 23, Verses 20 to 23. Just listen to this. God says that the angel of the Lord is to be obeyed. 
God says that his name is in the angel of the Lord, and he makes this statement. He says, the angel of the Lord has authority to forgive sins. Who do we normally think of as having authority to forgive sins? You remember the story of the paralytic, right? Being brought to Jesus in the Gospels, his friends lowering him through the tiles of the roof so that Jesus will see this man, so that Jesus will heal this man. And everyone expects Jesus to say, Sir, you are healed, but that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, Man, your sins are forgiven. And everybody in the room says, huh? What is that? Listen to what happened next. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus' healing of this man was to show that he has been given authority by the Father to forgive sins. So the fact that the angel of the Lord in Exodus 23 is declared to have been given authority by the Father to forgive sins, the fact that he is called God, the fact that he is worshipped, seems to be ample evidence that this angel of the Lord is in fact Jesus Christ himself, the pre-incarnate Son of God. Second person of the Trinity. Before the New Testament, before Bethlehem, before the first Christmas, the Son of God existed and was active in this world. Here in Daniel 3, this angel is called not only God's angel, his angel, but is described by Nebuchadnezzar as a son of the gods. You see the lesson then. Our Savior is with us in our affliction. Your Savior is with you in your furnace, in your time of trial. Your Savior is with you in the midst of your tribulations. It is Christ who promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, Herman, let's be very clear about this. Coming to Christ does not mean that you will be spared from your troubles. In fact, just the opposite. It was the faith of these three men that brought them their trouble. But coming to Christ does mean that he will be with you in all of your troubles. Even if you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he will be with you. And no harm will come to you that does not allow for your ultimate good and his glory. Indeed, it doesn't matter how many times the fire is heated. If Jesus does not have a good redemptive purpose in your suffering, you will not suffer at all. Jesus can keep you completely from suffering when it is not part of his plan to do you good. Let the devil shoot his every arrow at you. Let the world lay its every snare for you. 
Let your circumstances be like a furnace heated seven times hotter than normal. Christ can protect you so that not even a hair on your head will be harmed. But as we've said in recent weeks, it doesn't always work out this way. So I told you lots of stories of Reformation martyrs in the last few weeks. Sometimes for redemptive purposes, for God's glory and your eternal good, Christ does cause you to suffer. But even then, the suffering is carefully measured and he never puts you through anything more than he will give you the grace to bear if you are his. Whether Christ chooses for the flames to be powerful or powerless, you can be sure Christ will uphold you Christ will be with you, and he will bring you through. These men told King Nebuchadnezzar before they were thrown into the furnace, they said, we don't know whether our God will choose to save us from the furnace or not, but either way, he will deliver us from you, O king. That deliverance might be in being rescued from the fire, or it might be deliverance through death, but our God will bring us into his glorious presence. Dear Christian, it is the same with you. If God is for you, who can be against you? If Christ is with you, what will you fear? He is our Emmanuel, God with us. He's with you in the job interview. He's with you in that hard conversation that you know you got to have, but you really don't want to have it. He's there. He's with you in that MRI machine. When you're all alone in every other way, dear believer, you are never really alone at all. There is no such thing as a Christian who is alone. For your Savior is always with you. He's with you in your questions. He's with you in your doubt and your confusion. Christ is with you in your hurt and your discouragement. Christ is with you in your sadness. He's with you in your frustration. If you're here this morning and you are full of joy because of things that are happening in your life, Christ is with you in your joy. And if you're here this morning and you are full of sorrow, Christ is with you in the sorrow. You say, Justin, nobody else can understand what I'm going through. And you're right that nobody else in this room sitting in these seats can understand what you're going through. But there's one who understands. For he's been with you the entire time. Are you feeling the wondrous weight of this? Wherever you are in your life, he is with you. And get this. There is coming a day when you will be taken to him in a greater way that you can imagine so that wherever he is, you will always be, right? So wherever you are, he always is. There is coming a day he's going to take you to himself as his bride so that wherever he is, we will always be. Right now, he is with us always. There is coming a day when we will be with him always. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that good news, church? Let's finish up the chapter by looking at verses 26 through 30. Verses 26 through 30. 
the Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. Their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Well, you see the lesson here. God is faithful to his people. Uh, Those who stand firm will find that God rewards them and exalts them. If you're serious about obeying Christ, you might find yourself brought very, very low. But it will be temporary, for God will exalt his people. Uh, These men already held important positions of responsibility in the kingdom. Now they're promoted to even higher stations. Whether it is in this life or in the next life, God always honors those who honor him. You cannot out-honor God if you stand for him. He will find his joy in blessing you. It is his delight to outbless and outhonor those who serve him. Friends, what a change we see here in Nebuchadnezzar. And yet again, just like in Daniel 2, it's not a lasting change. This is a temporary, momentary, emotional moment for this pagan king. We wish we could say that he gave up his other gods and that he began to follow the true God this day, but he he doesn't. But at least here he acknowledges that there is no other God like the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He, He even calls their God the Most High God, meaning of all the gods that I do believe in, theirs is the one who's over all. Matthew Henry tells us to note here, that God can extort confessions of His blessedness even from those who have been ready to curse His face. And isn't that the truth? Wasn't there a time when even we in this room who are now believers were once against God? When even many of us used our lips against God? There are some of us who maybe grew up in Christian homes, and even when we were unbelievers, we would never have cursed God out loud. We would never have have said negative things about God or His people or His truth. But there are many others in this room and elsewhere who today are Christians, who at another time in their lives not only hated God, but they let people know it. 
They openly cursed God and his people and his truth to those with whom they came in contact. Here is this king who was seeking to put the servants of God to death. And now God has brought him to sing a very different tune. Friends, our God is the God who can cause the rocks to cry out and praise him, should he choose. I think we have here an example of what will happen for billions on the last day. When Jesus Christ comes back, and it's going to happen, when he comes back and he gathers all people before his throne, even those who hated his very name, Even those people who actively oppose the people of God will find themselves on their faces. And like Nebuchadnezzar, they will praise the God they have opposed. They will find themselves unable to hold their tongues when they see the Lord Jesus Christ lifted up on his throne, though they hated him every moment of their lives. In that moment, they will fall on their faces and they will cry out that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Like Nebuchadnezzar, it won't be permanent. They'll be cast into hell with hearts still hard, with hatred and bitterness still within them. They will be justly punished forever because of their rebellion, and their rebellious hearts will still be there. Like Satan, they will know that the Lord they hate is a good Lord, that He is all-powerful and all-wise, but they will keep hating Him nonetheless. And they will be consumed by their hatred and by the anguish of God's wrath for eternity. But before they are cast into hell, even in their opposition to Christ, in that moment when they see his glory, the way Nebuchadnezzar saw this amazing deliverance, they will see the glory of Christ and they won't be able to help themselves. They will fall down and say, Jesus Christ really is King of kings and Lord of lords. I wonder... How will it be for you on the last day? How will it go for you? Will you stand before the throne as a Christian? Able to speak about how you walked with Christ in your life here on earth? And as you approach his throne, will he know you? Will he know you? Will you be one who trusted him with the judge of your soul? The one who holds your eternal destiny in his hands? Will he also be the one you've known in this life as your savior? Will your worship on that day be the culmination of a life of worship that is happening right here, right now today? Or could it be that you will die outside of Christ. Still in your sins. Could it be that you will continue to live this life your own way? And you will meet the Lord Jesus Christ on that day as a stranger. And he will say those words to you, depart from me. For I never knew you. Everything hinges on this church. What do you do with Jesus Christ? Will you know him and trust him and follow him? Or will you live in rebellion against him? These are the only options. And heaven and hell hang in the balance. 
are you with the glorious, powerful, tender, gracious Son of God? Are you with Him? Is He with you? Are you for Him? Or are you against Him? I pray that if you've not already, you will take your stand with Christ today. And if you're a Christian here this morning, let us rejoice that our Lord is with us always. And let us rejoice that whatever cost we may pay in following Him today, He will exalt us in the end. Amen? Let's pray.